take your Bible this morning in our summer series and open back up to Matthew chapter 5. We've been just briefly studying the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount because it says in 5.1 that he was up on a mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in 5.2, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in the spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And now for our time this morning, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. There's enough there that we should just stop and pause and reflect on that. In 5.5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? What does it mean to be meek? What does it mean that they shall inherit the earth? Understand if you're holding a particular translation, I'm reading out of the ESV, obviously. If you have the word gentle, well, very well. The the Greek word is praus, uh, transliterated P-R-A-U-S. The ESV has it as meek. I think the NASB and a few other translations have it as gentle. So whether it's gentle or meek, that you could use that interchangeably. Now, we call the teaching here of our Lord the Beatitudes. I just remind you of that. It is the Latin term, Beatitude. It means blessed, okay? And so they're known as the Beatitudes because of that. And the word blessed, as you can see it there in verse 3, 4, 5, there's eight or nine of these Beatitudes, but there's a blessing pronounced. It means to be happy. It means to be blissful, but obviously it differs from the world's happiness that is based on circumstances. Blessed here in this text and in the Old Testament text is really the favor of God. If you're a believer this morning, you are favored of God. And the blessing to you, biblically, makarios, describes an inner joy. And what's interesting about this blessing or blessedness is it's independent of one's circumstances. And so here the Lord opens up his teaching after he announced his kingdom in chapter 4 and he pronounces a blessing on those who are his disciples. You know, when you really think about it, Christ was a master at turning one's thinking upside down. His teaching is not all over. It's packed with these stunning and striking contrast. Like this, when he said the last shall be, what? First. That dying, he said in another place, is living. That losing is, what? Finding. And that in your weakness, you are, what? Strong. And here this beatitude in 5.5 comes as a, thunderbolt from heaven because it is the opposite, is it not, of everything that the world is communicating. I mean, the world's beatitude, you would agree, would say blessed are the proud or blessed are the self-assertive. Blessed are those who climb on someone's back to get to the top or blessed are those who stab someone in the back that we live in a dog you know, eat world, dog fight world, and we're fighting each other, and it's dog on dog and so forth. But Jesus comes and says the opposite. But the world belongs, the world says, to those who push, to those who strive to get to the top. Now, in the religious context of the day, in terms of the background here, this was a seismic shockwave to the Jewish people. A seismic shockwave, if you will, to the Jewish people people, to the Jewish leadership, to the Jewish elite. I mean, you had different groups within Judaism, I think you're familiar with. I mean, the zealots, you think of the zealots, they wanted a militaristic Messiah. They wanted to rule by might. They wanted the the kingdom to come by force. They wanted the Messiah to come through military and through might. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they wanted a miraculous overthrow of Rome. They wanted Jesus to perform the miraculous, to perform the signs. 
so as to set up his kingdom. The Sadducees is another group of leaders and they wanted a materialistic Messiah. They wanted a kingdom right there that would give them all the things that they desired. And of course, there was another group called the Essenes who wanted a monastic Messiah and a Messiah that would bring in that type of kingdom. But in all of them, they all wanted to overthrow Rome. And our Lord profoundly says to you, says to this group of people, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I mean, imagine the shockwave. Like, we can just read it and hear it. But imagine the thought when Jesus comes on the scene, he announces his kingdom, that it's at hand. He's going through their villages, healing all of them. And then he comes to this group on the hillside and he says, I want to conquer the world and I want to conquer Rome with meekness or with gentleness. I would say it's unthinkable. Jesus declares a kingdom, beloved, that comes to those who are poor in spirit. It comes to those who are mourning over their sin. It comes to those who are broken over their sin. And here this morning, it comes to those who are meek or to those who are gentle. Now before us today is possibly something more searching than we've seen in the previous two weeks. You say, Scott, why do you say that? Well, because here it begins to touch on our relationship with others. Let me say it this way, that those who are poor in spirit, that those who are mourning over their sin before God actually are doing such before a holy God. But how much more difficult is it to allow other people to say things about us? (laughs) It's one thing when we confess it to God and we're broken before Him in spirit, begging on the inside and mourning. But what do we do when other people point things out to us? As one said, we sing the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, what? A wretch like me, it's one thing to sing that personally in worship and completely another to have your spouse tell you that, right? So here, meekness is something before each other in that realm. Now, just I remind you as we walk into this text, just so there's no confusion, I've said this the previous two weeks, I'll just say it one more time. Who is this teaching for? And we noted, if you look back in one. It said, see in the crowd, so the crowds are there, no doubt, and they're in it at the end of chapter 7. He went up to the mountain, okay, he's on that hillside, and when he sat down, watch this, his disciples came to him, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So maybe you can picture here concentric circles, the crowds grow as teaching, as Jesus is teaching on that hillside, but when he sits down, immediate before the hymn, is a group of disciples. So the disciples are the primary audience. And we said and noted that because the Beatitudes are not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. This is not how you enter the kingdom. I suppose there's truth to that, that you're poor in spirit, you're mourning over your sin, yes. But these are more a description of the character and the blessings of those who are already in God's kingdom. To those who have repented in chapter 4 and verse 17. And to those who have entered into his kingdom in 4.23 just in the previous chapter. And I make that point because if it's misunderstood then the sermon can become a set of legalistic demands. You could walk out of here and say I'm going to just choose to be poor in spirit. I'm going to just choose to, to mourn over my sin. But realize and recognize these are characteristics for a believer. So, beloved, here then in chapter 5, what follows then in his teaching is an explanation of how the repentant are to live in God's kingdom. If you're a believer this morning, here's how you should live. You should live as one who's broken in spirit over your sin. You should live as, a, as those who mourn over your sin. And here you should live as one who is meek. So, I would say to you, this is... A searching test. As one man said to me this morning when I walked in, this is good, but it's hard. And I think that's fair. You are called as a high school student. You are called as a mother. 
You are called as a father. You are called as a single to be meek. This is a searching test. And so what I'd like to do, it's just a little bit similar to the format we followed, is I'd like to ask you three questions and then answer those questions. What is meekness? The what, the why, and the how. What is meekness? Secondly, why are the meek blessed? And then thirdly, how is meekness manifested? So you need to just be careful to listen because I want to make sure you can test yourself if you have a meek spirit and maybe that will be a good lead into communion, okay? But let's first, let's dive into the text. First, what is meekness? He says there in verse 5, blessed are the meek. Well, very well then, what is meekness? What do you think meekness is? And I, I suppose what we really mean is what is biblical meekness? And so sometimes our arrangement in our own mind needs to be transferred to the teaching and the revelation of Scripture. There's a word, it's meek, and it's prouse, and that's to be identified. So what is it? Well, let me say from the outset that meekness, just so we understand, is not weakness, okay? In other words, when he said, blessed are the meek, he's not talking about meekness, or excuse me, weakness, whether it's physical weakness or just fortitude. That's not what he's talking about. He's also not saying you need to be meek and don't defend your family against an attack. That's not the teaching here. Or don't go to war because you need to be meek. There is a place, biblically beloved, for self-defense. And certainly here we are addressing our Christian life with others. So it's not weakness. But I'd also say that meekness is not cowardice. Okay? It's not to be a coward, if you will. So it's, it's not those things. It is not even really biblically describing someone who is easygoing. I don't want you to think of someone who's gentle or someone who's meek. It's just someone who has a chill spirit. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not describing someone who is easygoing. In fact, one dictionary definition of meekness or gentleness said it's one who is deficient in courage. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Nor does it mean that it's a peace at any price type of person. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You know those people who just lay down, even for the sake of truth, they're just a peace at any price. I just, I'll sacrifice truth for the, that's not what he's talking about. It's not talking about someone, I don't know if we use that word anymore, who's milk toast, okay? It's not talking about a man or woman who's spineless, who has no convictions, So then what is it? Well, what is meekness? Let me just say this to you, and I think this will resonate with you biblically. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, produces meekness. So why do I say that? Because meekness is a what? It's a fruit of the Spirit. You say, I don't remember that in the list. It's because it's translated there as gentleness. When your life, men is under the control of the Spirit of God, you'll manifest meekness, even as you'll manifest love, joy, peace, patience, and same with you women as well. So meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's very close to the word humility, okay? But what meekness does and what meekness is, and here here, this will help you, it's a spirit that does not fight or contend with God or man. So though it relates to our relationship with people, it's of course vertical. But it's a spirit that is not fighting or contending against God or man. Meekness, let me just say it this way, is to keep your passions under control. Okay? I'll say more about that in a moment. Meekness, beloved, it's it's not easy to define, but... It's the opposite of arrogance. It's the opposite of pride. What meekness is, is this. Meekness is not asserting yourself over others to accomplish your own agenda. That's just the way to say it. It's not asserting yourself over others to accomplish your own agenda. Meekness is to trust God. 
when a man or woman is meek, it means that your will is broken and your soul is subdued. Now, those are just phrases of what the meaning of the word is, but let me get a little closer for you, help you understand even how this word meek was used in the biblical language because it was a familiar word in Jesus' day. Sometimes they use this word meek to describe a patient who was suffering with a fever and he was given medication to relieve his or her discomfort. So someone's sick, they're given medication, it's gentle on them is the thought of meekness. The other way that this word was used is sailors described the wind as a gentle breeze. So maybe some of you felt a little bit of a gentle breeze at night, certainly not in the day. But sailors used that word, prouse, the the idea of mild or gentle, was a gentle breeze. It was also used, thirdly, to describe a colt that had been broken by a trainer. Now, when you look at those three terms, medicine, wind, and the colt, they all have something in common. And the word is power, okay? In other words, the proper dosage of medicine can bring health, but an overdose can kill someone. A cool summer breeze can be refreshing, but a hurricane is destructive. A broken horse, if you will, um, can be ridden, obviously, but a horse out of control is absolutely dangerous. All of those things have power. But when that power is under control, it is called meekness. That's the best way that I can understand biblically what that means. It's not weakness. It's not cowardice. It's power. But your power is under control. Okay? That is what it is. It describes a man or woman whose spirit is under control, whose spirit is gentle, a man or woman who manifests a sense of self-restraint. Now, let me just take you just a step further. Maybe the best way to understand meekness, power under control is how I'm defining it, is to look at some biblical examples with you, okay? So what, what, what do you mean a biblical example? Well, take Abraham. You certainly remember the text. I won't turn you to all of them. You can look on your own if you'd like. Romans 12, excuse me, Genesis 12. And I think we have that one up. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great, great nation, great name, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dis- and the one who dishonors you, I will curse and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was given a huge promise. At that point of that promise, He certainly was the most powerful man in the whole world, and I more mean that spiritually than I do physically, but it included physical blessing. What's interesting is you remember in your Bible reading, right in the next chapter, there was strife in Genesis 13, 7, between the herdsmen of of, uh, Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of, of Lot's livestock. Now, my question to you is, if you were Abraham, what would you have done, okay? I mean, there's a problem between there's too many of his and there's too many of Lot's. And God just told him in the previous chapter, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. He certainly had power. But if you were Abraham, what would you have done? Would you you have told your nephew, hey, pack it up and take a hike, okay? Listen, Lot, I just heard the voice of God. God just made a covenant with me. However, that's not what happened as you read the text. Abraham said, let there be no strife. You, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left, okay? So here's the point. Abraham had power. He had authority over Lot, but he kept his power under control. Beloved, that's meekness. Meekness means you have the power, but your power, men, in your home is under control. That's, that's meekness, okay? Take, for example, David. You remember that he was anointed to be king over Israel and over Saul by Samuel. Yet he suffered for years 
from Saul's unjust, unjust treatment. In 1 Samuel 24, do you remember the account? Saul wandered into the cave where David and his men were hiding. And the text says that Saul went in there for a bathroom break. Do you remember that one? And David and his men were in the recesses of the cave. And they noticed that it was King Saul, okay? And he could have killed King Saul. And David could have taken the throne that Samuel had told him was his. Now, my question is, if you're David, if you're the captain of his army, what would you have done? I mean, this is David. He had already been anointed. It just had not become his because Saul had not been killed. What would you have done? Would you have been, David, do him in? Would you have said, David, strike him? David, God God sovereignly brought him into this cave. I'm asking, what would you have done? And rather than cutting off Saul's head, do you remember David cut off the hem of his robe? He had discarded his robe and he came up with a knife and he just took a little bit. And then when he was down the mountain, he showed him that piece that he had cut off. My point is, David had power. David had authority, but his power and his passions were under control. That's meekness, beloved. That's, that's meek. It doesn't mean you're weak. It doesn't mean you're a coward. It just means that your passions are under control by the Spirit of God. I can think of Moses. Moses was a meek man. But I want you to know that this quality didn't come overnight for Moses. And remember early on in his life when he saw uh, Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, do you remember? Remember what happened? He rose up, struck him, and buried him in the sand. He killed a man. And Moses, you remember, was sent to the backside of the desert for 40 years, and here the time would allow and become the crucible where meekness was forged in his life. Because later when you meet up with Moses in Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam were complaining that God only spoke to him, spoke you know, to Moses, that God also can speak through us. And Miriam turned leprous. You remember that. But the, the, the verse that's striking there is in Numbers 12, in 1 through 4, it says of Moses that he was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. So at one point, he was abrasive, but he became meek. And I just want you to know, if you look at that, Moses doesn't defend himself. He is trusting God. His spirit is under control. There's so many more I can go on and say, but of course the greatest example of meekness is the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of this quality, if you can remember this, just think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the one who said, let the waters rise, and the waters rose. Rose. He's the one who created the mountains. He's the one who created the sun. He's the one who created the stars. He created them by the sheer power of his voice. He is the most powerful man that ever walked the face of the earth. But he said in here, in 1129 of Matthew, take my yoke, learn from me, for I am, what does it say? It says there, I am gentle, prouse. You, some translation says, for I am meek. Now, what surprises me there is Jesus doesn't really give you a ton of descriptions about his person and character but he, other than his claim to God. But here he says of his, of his heart is that he is gentle, that he is meek, that he is lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My point is the most powerful human being that ever lived, but that power was under control. When he was mocked, when he was spat upon, he did not answer. When friends betrayed him, when his friends fled from him, he uttered no reproach. In the grip of death itself, he pleaded, Father, forgive them, for they know not what what they do. In all of this, he he radiated power, but his power was under control. Beloved, that's my point. Jesus had his power under control. He was meek. And you know this certainly does not mean that he didn't confront sin. He did. He certainly does not mean that he didn't ever rebuke spiritual hypocrisy. He did. He looked at the religious Pharisee and he said, you whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside of the dish and the bowl, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He was the most powerful man that ever lived, but I'm telling you, he had his power under control. You say, how much, pastor? Well, this much. He could have called on a legion of angels to save him, and he chose not to. So listen, 
When you think of the Christian faith, it's meekness, it's gentleness. It's not getting a pound of flesh. It's not telling someone off necessarily. Okay, and I'll say more about that. It's to have your spirit under control of the spirit of God. Jesus had that power, but he didn't call and use that power in a wrong way. That's meekness. You say, but Scott, listen, if I'm meek, I'm going to get run over. If I'm meek, I'm going to be trashed. If I'm meek, I'm going to be trampled on. If I'm meek, then I'll never know the blessing of God. Well, that's not actually what Jesus says. Look down at the text. Do you see it there? He pronounces a blessing, makarios in 5.5, and he pronounces it on those who are meek. And now he says this in 5.5, for they shall, future tense, inherit the earth. So you say, well, what happens to the one is meek? Well, to the one who is meek, they shall inherit the earth. And so Jesus profoundly, as a seismic shockwave, said it is the meek, not the strong, not the aggressive, not the rude, not the tyrannical, who will inherit the earth. So that's what meekness is. But secondly, why are the meek blessed? There's the second question. Why are the meek blessed? Well, it says there, as we just read in 5.5, they shall inherit the earth and you would expect the opposite would you not if you are meek you'll be pushed out if you're meek you'll be trampled on but jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth now what does that mean to inherit the earth okay it's a fair question i mean we're asking that question because we're teaching the scripture i think it has a present reality it has a future reality i think the present reality is simply inherit in the sense that you've entered into his kingdom the the blessing here in the present sense, is that you've been blessed by God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Certainly, there's an aspect now where we've been blessed. We've been favored by God. We've been pronounced blessing by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is yours now. But I also believe there's a physical blessing. And we affirm this, that in Scripture there is a time when Jesus Christ will rule on the earth, when Jesus Christ will reign physically on the earth. It says such as this in Revelation 5.10, that you have been made a kingdom and priest to our God. And then it says there, and they shall reign on the earth. It says that we shall reign on the earth. So believers shall future tense, one day inherit the earth. In other words, beloved, paradise lost will be paradise regained and the meek will reign on the earth with the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming kingdom. That's what it's saying. It's speaking, I believe here, particularly of the thousand year reign. It certainly could include the new heaven and the new earth, but we know that there's a sphere of rulership that where Jesus Christ will rule and we will reign with him. Now, I want to show you something. Look again at 5.5. They shall inherit the earth. I want you to take your Bible and look over to Psalm 37. I found this fascinating. And certainly as we're turning to Psalm 37, I think that, you know, calls to your heart. You understand and we've memorized portions of Psalm 37. But I want to show you something because I, I do think that Jesus was quoting Scripture here. He was quoting his life in the kingdom. And I think you're familiar with the opening part, are you not, in Psalm 37? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. In other words, it's very similar to the context. You need to be meek because one day you're going to inherit the earth. And the psalmist opens up here by David and he says, I want you to fret not because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. In other words, don't fret from the world that we live in. Don't fret or be envious of people who do wrong and people who sin and people who seem to get ahead and people who cheat and people who you know deceive people and people who take people's money and people who stab you on the back and take your victory he he opens this and he says fret not yourself because of evildoers verse 2 for they shall soon fade like grass and they will wither like the green herb and you know this one beloved 37 3 trust in the lord and do good You know that. Trust Him is the thought. And dwell in the land. And so there He's talking about 
a present reality. Dwell in the land. And he says, and befriend or cultivate faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And then this, be still and know the Lord and wait patiently for him. And here it is, that exhortation. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Do you see people who prosper? I I mean, I see a lot of people who prosper the wrong way. And they use their talents and energies to prosper in this world. He says, do not fret, verse bottom of seven, over the man who carries out evil practices. He tells you by the Spirit of God, refrain from anger. In other words, don't get angry. He tells you to forsake wrath. Maybe you're in here and somebody took something from you. Maybe you're a woman in here and you're single and you've been divorced or vice versa. And it's not been easy. And they've not been kind in it and the whole thing that goes with it. Here the scripture is saying, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And so there's an exhortation here to obviously trust in the Lord, dwell in the land, commit your way to the Lord. But have you ever seen this? Watch this in verse 9. Here's the text. Watch this. It says there, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall, what? Inherit the land. In other words, you're going to inherit it one day. If you will, glance down at 3711. But the meek, that's what Jesus is saying, shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Go all the way down to verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land and those cursed by him shall be cut off. Go to verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Go down to verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. And so, beloved, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Trust in the Lord. Cease from anger. Why? Because one day you're going to inherit all things. That's the point. So he says, rather than striving, and rather than using might, and rather than using tyrannical rule, and rather than using a harsh voice, and rather than yelling at people, and rather than striving and contending with man and God, you need to be meek. You need to have power under control. And here's the reason. There is coming a day when the Lord will take the earth away from the wicked and give it to the meek. That's you. He's going to give it to you. It's just simply an escrow now, okay? But our future and our reward is in the future. So it helps you understand this a little bit. You could be gentle. You can be meek. You can say, if you go to the right and I'll go to the left. Why? Because not only would he get the land physically, but one day we get it all. And one day the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And one day he's going to stamp out all unrighteousness. And one day he's going to use you to rule with him in that kingdom and you get all of it. That's the millennial kingdom in Isaiah 11 where the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goats. But I especially like the next verse. Look at it in 1 Corinthians 3.20. The Lord knows the, the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, okay? So let no one boast in men for, watch this, all things are yours. <laughs> you believe that? You don't have to fret. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to forsake. You don't have to become wrathful. It only leads to evil doing. The Bible says from Paul, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You're going to rule with him one day. In fact, look over in your Bible to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. Let me show you this. 
It's a great section in there. They're talking about who is the greatest. You remember that in Matthew chapter 18 as you turn there. Who is the greatest of, uh, in the kingdom of God? In fact, it's actually in chapter 19. Go over there. And he says there, Jesus said to them, remember this? 1928, truly I say to you, in the new world, okay? In the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? Eternal life. So there it's eternal life, but in Matthew it's there you'll inherit the earth. And so he says, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. You know, you used to grow up sometimes and hear that expression, my dad is stronger than your dad. Or some people would say, my house is bigger than your house. But listen, beloved, the truth is, is we get the world. We get the world. We're heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns everything and you will become a partaker with him. You will inherit the earth. I saw this week, maybe you saw in the last, I don't know, 10 days or so, there's been lots of activity in the NBA and free agency. And there's a player up in Golden State and I think we really feel sad for him. He took a hit for his team. I don't know if you saw this. He took a hit for his team and signed under his value on the open market to stay with the Golden Warriors. His name is Kevin Durant. And I think we feel bad for him because he's one of the best players of the world. So he only signed for $53 million for two years. And, you know, he really took a shot. So he makes $26 million probably uh, playing basketball and he probably makes another $30 million on his endorsements. And so, but listen, you can look at all that stuff and you can talk about Steph Curry and the other guy that just signed the richest contract extension is James Harding. But all I know is you inherit the whole thing. You inherit it all. You'll, you'll be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's mansions in glory for you. So what, what Jesus is saying here, listen, my kingdom belongs to those who are poverty of spirit. My kingdom belongs to those who mourn over their sin and those who mourn over their sin are going to be comforted. And my kingdom belongs to those who are meek and to those who are gentle. And one day they shall inherit the earth. So what is meekness? It's power under control. Why are the meek blessed? Because they inherit the earth. But maybe just the last question. How is meekness manifested? How can you tell if you're meek? Okay. How can I tell if I'm meek? And what I want to do, just a little searching test for us, is give you four markers to identify this quality. Okay. You're meek. Okay. You're meek when this happens. Okay. You're meek, number one, when you trust God for your future. Now, obviously, I'm utilizing Psalm 37. So let me ask you, men and women, are you trusting God for your future? Are you? Are you committing your way to the Lord? Are you committing your plans and your thoughts and your goals and your health and your job and your marriage and your finances? Are you rolling over all your burdens to the Lord and committing all your way to him? whether it be your marriage, whether it be your business, whether it be your sports, whether it be your finances? Are you waiting for the Lord? Listen, you should, I should, because he's trustworthy. Meekness, beloved, let me say it this way, is trusting God for your future. You say, what tie-in are you making there, Scott? It's this. When you realize you'll inherit the earth, you're going to be pretty satisfied with where the Lord has you right now. We can let KD sign that statement. But one day you get heaven. One day you get God. One day you get Christ. One day all your sin is removed. One day there's no more morning. One day there's no more night. One day there's no more sin. One day there's no more tears. But you'll become a meek man or a meek woman when you can trust God for the future. In fact, I'll say it this clear to you. You're fighting or I'm fighting or contending with God usually with something that only has to do with this earth. 
And so we fight and we battle and we claw and we scratch. And what Jesus wants us to do is to trust him for both the present, certainly, but trust him for the future. And that's what it is. You refrain from fretting over the evil who prosper and you're at peace. Number two, okay? Not only are you meek when you trust God for your future, but when you're patient with other people, okay? That meekness is going to be revealed vertically, but it's going to be revealed, if you will, horizontally when you're patient with other people. Galatians 6.1, I'll just marshal these off. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. In a spirit of meekness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You'll know you're meek when you're patient with other people. When you're patient with people who even sin against you. Or when you see people sin, you're going to restore them. Not with harshness, not with a hammer. You're going to restore them in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. When a Christian beloved falls into sin, you have the power to hurt him. You have the power to say the wrong thing. But meekness is power under control. And I would say to you and to my own heart, be ever so careful about developing a harsh and a critical spirit. Do you remember the teaching of the book of Ephesians? And you'll note that these are always together with all humility and what? It's gentleness, but again, it's the word meekness, okay? With patience. It's usually you see those in a trio. Where there's humility and where there's patience, there's usually going to be gentleness and meekness. And then it says bearing with one another and so forth to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul cites this in the next verse. Look on in Colossians. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness. Watch this. There it is again. Humility. And then it's interesting. There it's translated meekness or gentleness and patience. Listen, you're going to be a meek man when your spirit's under control and you're patient with people. You say, well, Scott, okay, you're talking about when you're patient with others. What does the word mean? You've heard me say this before. Patience is just simply the word macrothumia, okay? I'm not trying to say all of you have to know Greek. I'm just telling you what the word means. It's macrothumia. Micro, you know what the word micro means. Micro just means small. Macro means long. Thumia, we call that a compound word, comes from Thumas, which means heat, okay? Sometimes we call a thermos, thermos. But here's what the word patience means. It means you have a very long fuse. When you're patient with people, you don't blow up at people. You don't become irritated with people. You become patient with them. You have a humble, lowly spirit. You manifest gentleness. You manifest patience. And you're patient. You don't have a short fuse. You don't blow up. You don't blow your stack. You have a humble spirit. And this is not easy. In fact, some of you, frankly, who are business owners, this is really hard, to be honest. How you maintain standards in your business or maintain standards in your home and keep a high standard, but realize you have to manifest as a, a business leader, a businesswoman, if you're leading your own business, meekness this way. In fact, look at Paul in 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He told Timothy, I don't want you to be a, a wrangler, if you will, but you need to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting, though, correcting his opponents with, there's our word again. You're correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. That's why it's a sign of immaturity for a young man to argue his theology and lose this quality over it. Doesn't mean that you lay down, but you're, you're there. You're kind. You're able to teach. You're patiently enduring evil. You're correcting those, his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God may grant them repentance to a knowledge of truth. So what is meekness? It's patience with others. 1 Peter 3, but, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always, it says there, um, being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet you do it with what? Gentleness. You say, but Scott, I feel pretty passionate about the gospel. Yes, feel passionate about the gospel, but I'm quoting you the scripture. 
If you're getting in arguments with people and arguments with your family, listen, contend for the truth, but make sure you don't cross over that line and lose your patience with others, knowing all at the same time God's got to open their eyes. So it says there, you do that hope, you give that hope, you do it with with gentleness and with respect. In fact, it says in Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be what? Gentle, to be meek, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So beloved, this is a, a spirit that we need. I would even say, I always remember one time John MacArthur used to say, what is the greatest weakness in leadership? I thought, whoa, that's good. There's one thing that's great. There's one weakness that's the greatest. And I always remember, you know what he said it was? It's a lack of patience. It's a lack of patience. And as an elder and as a pastor, we need to be reminded to be very, very, very patient. I remember one time, I don't know if I've shared this with you, I was... uh, coming off a short-term ministry that I was on after my graduation from seminary. I traveled in the United States for one year, and I represented the, the seminary. I represented the college. It was a dream job for a guy in my case. John MacArthur did that many years ago at Talbot Seminary. When he graduated, he went out and preached. And so they, they developed this, this, this ministry called Master Design, and it represented the college, the university, the seminary, grace to you, all those entities, and and it allowed me to go preach. So I went out and preached, and I think in the course of a year, I preached about 250 times. I'd preached one week, I preached 11 times. I was in chapels, I was in churches, I was in services. I traveled with a team, they sang, I preached. It was really a, a wonderful year, but I remember coming to the end of end of that year, and I had some churches talking to me, and uh, I was young, dumb, and naive. I mean, I got my MDiv when I was 25 and thought I knew everything, and I really, you know, you, you can be proud a little bit. You think you come out with all that knowledge, and then you preach all those times, and you're ready to go take a church at 26, and that was about the time when John MacArthur said, I'd like you to come be the college pastor. I'd like you to be the pastor over our university students. And I was trying to weigh what he asked me to do, what my home pastor, my home church, I grew up in that church, I got saved at that church, I met Patty at that church, I cut my teeth in ministry at that church, I went to seminary there, and he asked me to come on and be a pastor. But I had these other churches pursuing me to be the senior pastor. And I still remember, I can tell you the place, I can show you where I was standing, I could even point you out the circle where I was standing, and I asked him this question. I said, hey, give me one reason why I should take this job. Tell me one reason why I should, t-. it was kind of, how arrogant, kind of, you know, to ask him that. You know, kind of like, hey, can you give me, a, I mean, I think it was from my heart. I was young, dumb, and naive. But I said, hey, can, can you give me one reason why I should take this job and pass these jobs up? He said, yes, God, I can give you a reason. I said, okay, lay it on me. He said, you should take the job because you're abrasive. It was kind of like a harpoon out of heaven. He told me because he knew my tendency. And as my tendency as a point guard on the basketball team, I can sometimes be abrasive. And he said, Scott, you need to learn how to be a pastor. And I'm just telling you, God's sovereign, I said, okay, I'll come be the college pastor right there because I knew I needed a man and men in my life to take my unbridledness, if you will, my energy and my strength that way. But if I'm not careful, my strength becomes a weakness. It can still be that today. I have to pray to walk in the spirits. But are are we almost done? Listen, one other one. You know you're meek, number one, when you trust God. You know you're meek, number two, when you're patient with people and not abrasive. Number three, you know you're meek when you can forgive other people, okay? When you can forgive other people. Peter said to the Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, and you know the account. Jesus said, I do not say up to you seven times, but up to 77 times. In other words, you've got to forgive people. You're meek when you forgive. Like, as you come to communion, are you meek? You ticked off at someone? 
you angry at someone, I just think you need to forgive them. You say, well, Scott, they've never asked forgiveness, and they did this, 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 and this. And I would say to you, listen, I don't even think you can explain to me the hurt that you've experienced by people, okay? I'm not trying to say that I'm in your shoes, but I do know this. You need to forgive someone from the heart. You need to forgive them from the heart, whether you're reconciled. You say, well, Scott, they've never apologized. I know they've never apologized. You might not have reconciliation friend to friend or person to person or, you know, individual to individual, but you need to forgive that person from the heart, okay? Watson said this is a Herculean work. He said nothing more crosses the stream of the corrupt nature. Men forget kindness, but remember injuries. He said, I once heard of a woman that lived in malice and being requested by some of her neighbors when she lay on her deathbed to forgive, she answered, I cannot forgive though I go to hell. And some, Watson said, would rather sacrifice their lives than their lust, but forgive we must and forgive as God forgives. You've got to forgive. And you can forgive from the heart. You say, but Scott, it just keeps coming up all the time. Well, no wonder. Jesus said, up to 70 times, what? Seven. Every time you remember it, every time you forgive them from your heart. I I think at one other point, I've told you one man called me on the phone from an aspect of ministry. And he said things so rude to me that I can't even repeat. I would never, I've never repeat him to a soul. You say, well, was I reconciled that guy? No, it was the the worst thing that anybody could actually ever say to you verbally. But I had to remember that I needed to forgive that man from the heart. And God was sovereign in that and I forgave him from the heart without him apologizing. And then God struck him with a heart disease that was taking his life And people would come to him at his deathbed and said, hey, Pastor Scott's still praying for you in church. And he called me on the phone. And he said, Scott, I just want you to forgive me for what I said to you. And I was able to tell this man on the phone, listen, I've already forgiven you, but thank you for telling me that. And the reason I'm telling you that is not to pat myself on the back. I wasn't gonna let his words to me shrivel my own heart. So I had to forgive him before he even sought reconciliation for me because I think that's a biblical principle. You forgive someone from the heart. But listen, you're going to know you're gentle. I'm going to know I'm gentle or not gentle if you forgive one another from the heart. And finally, I don't know, the last one is when you submit to God's word. You're meek when you submit to him.